Hey, this is Kayla from Canine Conservationists, just popping in with a quick bonus episode. As you may have seen online, um, Canine Conservationists is donating a bunch of time to Action for Cheetahs in Kenya. So this means that myself, as well as hopefully Rachel and Heather, who are two of the other teammates over at Canine Conservationists, are going to be spending four to six weeks each in Kenya this year, helping out Action for Cheetahs in Kenya. So this came about, um, I got a Facebook message from someone who um, knew Stacey Barnett, so shout out to Stacey from a couple of our past episodes, uh, asking if she knew anyone who could help out basically rebuilding the canine team for Action in Cheetos, Action for Cheetahs in Kenya. And Stacey gave them my name, I got a Facebook message, I applied, and um, I'm going. They are looking for some long-term help to rebuild the human half of their canine team after experiencing some high turnover kind of related to pandemic related staffing issues, some pay, um, you know, they're, um, it's a, it's a very tight budget, this nonprofit. Um, so what they've got is they've got three highly trained conservation detection dogs. One is a nine-year-old kind of Roddy border collie mix. Um, and then they've got two, three-year-old Belgian Malinois. And what they are needing help with is that they've got the dogs, but they just started hiring these new handlers and the handlers need a lot of work in order to be up and running and operational. So I have offered to go for six, six weeks. Um, and the position is functionally unpaid. The action for Gina's in Kenya, as I said, has a pretty tight budget. What they're able to do is they are going to cover my flights and my housing and my in-country food and transportation and that sort of stuff. Um, but the stipend that I'm getting is, going to be between $100 and $250 for the entire month. Um, so, and the same goes for Rachel and Heather. We haven't officially decided if all of them are going. As of right now, it's looking pretty good, but hopefully all three of the canine conservationist team members are going to be able to kind of rotate in and out of Kenya, which will help keep the staff training and dog training a lot more consistent because all three of us are on the same page. So, um, we are running a big fundraiser, which is why I'm popping in with this kind of I want to call it an emergency episode, but it's not. Um, this bonus episode talking a little bit about um, getting us up and running. So what we're doing, um, we have a straight up donation page that you can go to if you go to canineconservationists.org or on either our Instagram or TikTok. If you check out our link tree, you can just straight up donate to us. Um, or if you go on over again to either the link tree or um, on other of our social medias or go over to Facebook, we have an Eventbrite set up for a trivia night. So we are planning a trivia night that will take place March, the first Thursday in March, which I believe is either March 3rd or 4th. March 3rd, this is great audio content. Um, we are going to be running a fundraiser and that fundraiser is going to be an online trivia night. So it'll be, it'll take place over Zoom. I know we're all sick of Zoom, but you can bring your own drink. You can bring your own snacks. Suggested donation is $25 per person. Um, and teams of up to six. We're going to have all sorts of fun uh, topics for for this uh, this trivia night. And the prize is going to be a $50 gift card to your favorite local watering hole, um, rather than us picking a specific one. Um, we wanted to let the winners choose wherever is local to them. So trivia topics are going to include the history of working dogs, African big cats, the science of conservation dogs, and conservation biology and ecology. Um, we're hoping to get a couple really exciting kind of co-hosts in to help 
run the event. But as of right now, that is the plan. It's going to be 5 o'clock Mountain Time or 7 o'clock Eastern on Thursday, March 3rd. So be sure to join us for that. Again, you can find those links in all the places I just mentioned. Of course, if you go to canineconservationist.org, we'll make it available there as well. The other thing that we are planning on doing is that you can go ahead. We will, um, when the Mammal March Madness bracket goes live, we will also be doing a Mammal March Madness fundraiser. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Mammal March Madness was started by um, the writer of the blog, Mammals Suck Milk. And it is a play on the March Madness bracket system, but instead of, you know, basketball teams, you're basically uh, making guesses and predictions of which animals would win in a fight. I've been hooked on this since I took a mammalogy class in undergrad with Dr. Liesel Erb, um, in which we had to fill out a bracket and then write essays <laughs> defending our choices. Uh, and I haven't quite figured out the format for this, but it's going to involve some amount of you buy into our brackets and then the winner and canine conservationists will split the profits. <clears throat> so um, we've got a couple different fun ways that you can donate and support our work. This is why canine conservationists is a nonprofit though. Um, while I'm incredibly excited about this opportunity for myself and the team, uh, and it's going to be a lot of fun, I'm really looking forward to it. You know, we're, uh, we're not getting paid at all. <laughs> um, and while that's, again, that's the point of us being a nonprofit, we want to be able to offer these services at a low cost to help worthy causes. Um, obviously, you know, we still have student loans and, you know, I just had to renew my passport in order for to go on this trip. And it was $190 just to renew my passport. So that's, you know, basically my entire stipend right there. Um, so, and again, Action for Cheetahs in Kenya is a really, really cool nonprofit. We're really honored to be helping them out. And we are excited for it, but we need your help to help make sure that, again, we can all pay our student loans back home. So what these dogs do, obviously they're finding cheetah scat. They're also working on leopard, lion, and caracal scat. And they may be um, expanding out to a couple other really interesting opportunities as well. And what they're doing with this cheetah scat is, you know, they're able to look at the relatedness of these cheetahs. Cheetahs are really quite inbred. Um, their dispersal, who's related to whom, what they're eating and the overall animal health. And because cheetahs are so easily stressed out, this is really, really important um, as a non-invasive survey technique to help these kitties out um, because you don't have to capture them, you don't have to take blood, none of that sort of stuff. We're just able to send the dogs out and, uh, and help collect this cat. And as you've heard so, so, so many times on this podcast, just because you've got highly trained dogs doesn't mean you've got a functioning team. So it's really, really important that we are able to go in and help rebuild this team and hopefully get them to the place where they're self-sustaining, they're functional on their own, and they don't need our help anymore. So again, you can find all of those links to support our work over at canineconservationists.org. Check our link tree on Instagram and TikTok, or again, even go onto our Facebook page. Those links are all over the place. Thank you so much for your support, and we will keep you updated on all of the different uh, ways that you can support and stay involved. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, NGOs, and just about anyone else who needs conservation detection dogs for their work. 
Today, I have the joy of talking to Jennifer Hartman of Rogue Detection Teams and Kyoko Johnson of Conservation Dogs of Hawaii about what to know before hiring a conservation detection dog team. This is part two of our two-parter on this topic. I'm super excited to get to this interview, but before we get to it, I'm changing things up yet again. We're going to do a quick science highlight before each episode. Today, we're highlighting a 2018 paper in Scientific Reports by De Matteo and others. Um, this paper examines reasons beyond detection dog accuracy that DNA results of SCAT may return as off-target species. So this paper used a single dog, um, Dr. Karen DiMatteo's dog, to compare how the dog responded to puma scat that had been urinated by, on by a coyote or eaten by a dog and then pooped out again. They also examined if the dog alerted to non-target scat with the same diet as puma and if the dog would generalize to urine after um, being exposed to urine-marked scat. Finally, they compared the dog's results, the dog's responses to DNA results. They did a couple other kind of mini studies as well, but these are the ones that we're going to highlight here. And they did find a couple really interesting things. Namely, that puma scat that had been urine marked by a coyote returned as coyote or non-target in the DNA analysis, um, even though the dog did not generalize to alert to coyote urine. So in other words, if a coyote pees on a puma scat, the dog will alert to the puma scat, but the DNA will return um, saying that it was a puma, or uh, that it was a coyote, not a puma, and therefore the dog was quote-unquote wrong, um, even though the scat was actually puma scat. Um, they also found that if a dog eats the scat of a puma and then poops it out, train, the detection dog, did alert to some of those scats as puma, um, but the DNA analysis showed that the scats were domestic dog with no trace of puma. So even though um, basically what they did is they fasted dogs, then they fed them puma scat, um, and then they used glitter um, so that you could actually see kind of the proportion of puma scat inside of the dog's scat. Really, really interesting stuff. Um, and again, the dog um, train did alert to some of those samples. Um, not all of them. It kind of depended on the amount of puma scat that was in the dog scat, which makes sense. Um, but again, the DNA result came back saying that the um, the scat was just dog and there was no trace of puma. Um, so there's this is a really, really interesting paper and there's a lot more to it. Um, but it's also just a start. Um, I'd love to see future research with more target species, more detection dogs, and also following up to examine how likely each species pair is to actually engage in something like urine marking or coprophagy. Um, but the bottom line is that there are plausible reasons beyond dog training or dog accuracy issues that a DNA result may come back as off target. Um, so super duper interesting. And now let's get to our interview with Jennifer and Kyoko. Well, hi, Jennifer and Kyoko. Thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for yeah, having me. Excited to be back. Yeah. So in our last episode, we were kind of roughly talking about the what you need to know or what you need to think about before you even really consider if working with a dog team makes sense for your upcoming project. And today we're going to talk about actually selecting the dog team and preparing to work with them. And the first thing we're going to talk about um, and this, as many of the things that we're talking about today, I think is something that the dog team teams can help you troubleshoot going forward. But the first thing we're going to talk about is what hazards might the dog and the dog handler team be facing in the field. So Kyoko, do you want to kick us off with a couple of the things that people need to, researchers need to be thinking about on that end? Sure. Um, a lot of those things are, you know, hazards, potential hazards to humans as well. But some that come to mind include 
you know, biting, stinging insects um, and snakes, not in Hawaii, but on the mainland and other potentially dangerous mammals in the um, survey area. There's hazardous terrain like sharp rocks and steep cliffs, uneven ground um, that can cause injury or, you know, even death in some cases. Um, diseases that might, you know, uh, that you might be able to catch or the dog might be able to catch in the environment. Um, there's heat stroke, sunburn from, you know, working too hard in the sun, um, stuff like that. That's what I can think of offhand. Yeah, I know one of the other ones that I've thought about a little bit is um, also just road conditions and field site access um, and making sure that A, you can get to the field site safely and B, if something were to happen, making sure that you're kind of prepared for what it would take to get yourself to a hospital or a veterinarian. Um, Jennifer, do you want to jump in with anything else that we need to think about as far as, you know, the work schedule, safety equipment, those sorts of things to help mitigate risk even further? Yeah, I think... um... It also just depends, of course, on the project. <laughs> I could probably say that for everything. But for example, if the researcher is hoping to accompany the detection dog team um, in the field, that's kind of different than if the detection team will be kind of operating solely. Um, so just some things to think about in terms of that travel and access. Um, are we all traveling together You know, in the same vehicle? Do we need to look into helicopters? Um, as far as like vaccinations, if we do international travel, um, I think a lot of times we think about humans, but we might not realize, you know, what vaccinations we need to prepare for months in advance for the dogs. Um, and then again, also researchers sometimes rightly so (laughs) aren't thinking from the dog perspective, that's our job. Um, so, but they might, um, kind of take for granted some of the things in the, in the field, um, area that you know, when we get on the ground, we're like, oh, shoot, we didn't realize this. So yeah, just kind of going over general ecosystem um, with the detection dog handlers that you're hoping to employ will really help them prepare so they can come, you know, on site and have all the gear that they need, whether these are the, you know, the booties or swamp coolers, um, vaccinations, uh, first aid kits and whatnot to be able to do the work. Yeah, I'm so glad you specifically mentioned, you know, the fact that there are some risk factors that are different for people versus dogs. You know, obviously, rattlesnakes are not good news for anyone involved. But I know um, this most recent wind farm project I had one of, we had two big hazards that were more concerning for the dogs than for the people. Um, One being just running into the fact that it is harder for the dogs to work in certain types of heat than it is for people. I can comfortably wander around a wind farm at 80 degrees all day, um, you know, with appropriate gear, maybe, maybe not all day, but, um, but that same temperature is much, much more challenging for the dogs, um, especially until they've uh, gotten used to it. Um, But then actually even bigger than that, what we saw in this last wind farm project was that there was free ranged cattle on the wind farm. And the cattle weren't necessarily aggressive, but they were mixed herds with, you know, there was calves, there was heifers, there was bulls, um, there was mamas with baby calves. Um, and having a dog off leash around cattle is much, much more challenging than, you know, having a human around cattle. Um, and that was something that the researchers we were working with hadn't really considered. And it was really, really challenging, um, pretty much daily uh, for us on that. And we didn't, we didn't really realize until we had gotten onto the site, which is something we're going to talk about going forward, um, how important it is to be able to 
do those risk assessments from, again, as Jennifer said, the eyes of the dog and us thinking about it because the researchers just didn't even consider how big of a challenge the cattle would be for us. Um, so next up, we have um, kind of talking about cultural sensitivity, especially if we're kind of outside of the U.S. or a North American or uh, European lens. Do either of you have anything that you want to jump in to say about just the fact that dogs might have cer- certain cultural connotations or may not be as appropriate as of a method, kind of depending on where we are culturally in the world? We've had um, some projects, for example, in Turkey. And it's very different. Uh, dogs are um, kind of thought of very differently there than they are here. Um, people were kind of grossed out that we had a dog with us either in the car or in a hotel. So we kind of, it was uh, tricky to navigate that scene um, in country because with, if you think about it and you're traveling with a dog, you, you're going to land in a, in a city center and you're going to need to take the dog on breaks. Um, you're not always going to be in, in the wild um, or the wilderness. And so it's kind of navigating those city centers. Um, so if researchers could facilitate finding, you know, safe harbor for the detection teams, that's always helpful. Um, when we were in like, like Cambodia and um, Nepal and uh, Vietnam, it was also very challenging to find safe places to let the dogs take breaks because frequently there are packs of feral dogs um, and also just a difference in, um, you know, <laughs> where we're allowed to take the dogs culturally. So oftentimes we we were taking breaks in, in trash heaps because otherwise we would be yelled at uh, by locals like, you can't, you can't walk there, you can't go there, you know. And it, it was just weird for them to see a dog on leash. Um, so I think hopefully having some sort of uh, conversation prior to, to make sure that, you know, we're not stepping uh, into a situation that is disrespectful to the communities and cultures that we're going to be um, serving in. And also what I think has helped on some projects is having conversations prior to um, going out into the field. For example, in Nepal, we, we had to ask permission from different villages um, to survey in their community forests. Um, and this led to some fascinating conversations and they actually facilitated a lot of um, our ability to locate pangolin in the wild because um, we were able to first have um, kind of meetings beforehand, and I it, it was it was very different than a meeting in you know Western culture. It was very formal uh, with tea and um, lots of introductions back and forth. So the other kind of expectation with some of these projects is fieldwork may not be the only thing that you know, the detection team is being asked to do, because sometimes we have to introduce ourselves, introduce the method, share how this is going to help the, the, the local communities. Um, and so some of that is just part of part of the job. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, that's not thought of in pre, pre-prep planning. So those are just a few ideas I have. Yeah, thank you so much for jumping in on that. I know I haven't done work internationally as much yet, but it's um, that's really, really great experience and insight. Kyoko, did you have anything to add there before we move on? Sure. Um, so we haven't worked internationally either, but those are some great points that um, Jennifer brought up. Um, in Hawaii, we're pretty um, lucky in that dogs are very well received. Um, I think a huge percentage of the community has pet dogs. And um, a lot of locals also hunt with their dogs, like whether it's, you know, invasive deer or pigs or whatever. So the idea of using dogs for 
hunting, even though it's a different application, is pretty common. And so that makes it easy for us to, you know, talk to the community about how we're using dogs, you know, for invasive species or whatever, even though it's a little bit different from the hunting that they do. Yeah, that's great. I love being around communities that are used to working dogs. Um, although Jennifer, as, as you've mentioned, I uh, I have seen a couple of times just, yeah, people being surprised about leashes or that your dog is allowed in in the body of your vehicle or or whatever that is. Um, yeah. So next up, kind of switching gears. Um, I think one of the biggest things that researchers need to be thinking about as they're reaching out to a dog team and considering working with a dog team is where the samples are actually going to be sent and analyzed. So Jennifer, do you want to kick us off oh, there yeah. again? Um, yeah. It's so funny that sometimes, um, especially with SCAT projects, um, you know, it's the first thing that everyone wants to find it is this data. But the other thing that goes that's the second part of the detection dog methodology is where is this data going to be sent? Um, and so we work, we have worked with um, a lot of different um, genetic laboratories, um, depending on the research that is happening, but sometimes they're working with master students and they haven't developed any methods yet. Um, they might be working in a lab that has developed methods, but sometimes they haven't. So it's going to be a brand new analysis that, that is going to occur. And some of the dangers or just ideas to think about prior to working with a detection dog is where are you going to send these samples and can they be analyzed? Um, so not every genetic lab um, produces the same, you know, primers and assays and, um, you know, that's not my expertise. But, you know, they just like, uh, you know, we work with dogs differently. Each lab works with the samples that they receive differently. So it's really good and important for researchers to know where their data is going to be sent to um, understand if they're actually going to get the answers from the the data that they want um, so that's you know i think a lot of detection dog groups out there can point the direction to some of these laboratories oftentimes like i said researchers already have a lab they want to work with but there's kind of no point in us going out and collecting a whole bunch of scats if then at the end of the project um, they can't actually be you know, amplify the way that we stored them, um, but no one thought about that beforehand. So talking about, you know, storage and where they're going to be sent and how, and, you know, what questions they want um, to get out of those scats are all really, really important conversations to have. And that can happen with the detection dog team, um, just to make sure everyone's on the same page. Yeah, those are all really good points. So next up, Kyoko, do you want to talk a little bit about um, what sort of ancillary data in addition to detections um, researchers may want to consider having the handler collect? Sure. It depends on the project and the goals, of course. But um, some of the things that we've collected in the past include GPS tracks um, for both human and dog. Um, and then, of course, the detections or the waypoints. Um, in certain projects, we've also collected, you know, weather conditions like rain, um, you know, wind speed and wind direction, um, things like that, um, or the amount of time it took to cover a certain area, um, um, which could also be determined by GPS, GPS tracks, I suppose. Um, what else? Or vegetation cover um, of an area um, so that you can determine whether that affects um, detection probability, things like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know we've also in the past kept notes on, you know, the time of day and weather conditions. Um, 
maybe field samples of the vegetation or soil around there. Um, and again, these are just, these are questions for the researchers to be asking themselves. There are some things that like, I, I know for me, it's pretty standard to, I'm going to have my GPS on me. My dog is going to be wearing a GPS collar. So it's really um, pretty standard to always include the GPS tracks and obviously the waypoints. But, you know, if, if the researchers want any other information um, or potentially, like I, I, I know there could be an example where, you want to know whether it was a singular scat out um, on a trail or if it was a full-on latrine site. Some of those sorts of things um, may be useful for the researchers to know, but making sure that the researchers um, have thought about that consciously, especially if they're not going to be with us in the field, <laughs> so that we are able to gather those data um, and not miss anything that they would consider um, important or obvious. Jennifer, did you have yeah, anything to add actually, on that? Yeah, uh, actually, this is a really good discussion piece because... Um, Early on, you know, we were really excited to be like, yeah, detection dog teams can do it all. So we, you know, we offered to do some vegetation measurements on some of our projects and do some extra things, you know, because we're like, well, we're already out there. Let's, um, let's just add it on. But what we also realized is um, the longer the list of measurements or other things that data collection that we're doing in addition to what we're actually out there to collect the more it kind of takes away from our ability to cover more area and more distance. And sometimes the dogs especially would get really frustrated during these long pauses. So if you think about taking habitat measurements like DBH of a tree and, um, uh, you know, looking through kind of a crystal uh, device, I'm forgetting the name, but to see canopy cover, um, that all takes time. And so in the end, we actually said, you know what, we, we don't think this is ideal for, for you, you know, the researcher, because we're not covering as much ground out there. So instead, sometimes what we've done is, like Kyoko was saying, if you take a GPS at each of the samples you collect, they can kind of randomly go through and select which ones um, that they want to go specifically and do a big habitat assessment. And then that way, they're still getting some other habitat uh, measurements, depending on, you know, the analysis. But uh, the detection teams are able to do what they're best at doing, which is covering ground and hopefully finding more samples. So yeah, these these conversations are so important to have beforehand. And often we'll send a sample of the of the um, form that we'll collect in the field. It typically takes us like 30 seconds to fill out, but it has it automatically connects uh, sorry collects date and time, you know, location, and the different detection team. And then there is a spot for um, notes. We also take pictures of every single sample that we collect um, so that we can match it once we get the genetics back. And it, so it's a really quick process. Um, and it's a form that we can develop in a, in a program called Open Data Kit. And some researchers or other detection teams might use something different. But that's just an example. I just wanted to add to that. Sometimes um, it's depending on the location, if it's not too remote, it's possible to get um, assistance to help the dog teams so that the dog handler can focus on their own data collection or the detection, and then the assistant can help with, you know, the other stuff that Jennifer mentioned. And um, it's also nice, you know, to be in the field with somebody else for safety reasons as well. So we try to do that when we can. Yeah, definitely. And I know I certainly get <clears throat> enough emails from interested and qualified people that as long as that's something that the researchers and the research area allow and we're not out way in the middle of nowhere. Um, that's always a really nice um, addition as well. And that, um, you know, that brings us to the question of accessibility. So um, 
Koko, do you want to talk a little bit about how important it is for the the dog handler in particular to be able to access an area to scope it out before the research actually starts? Sure. Yeah. I, I you know, it's so funny because in the past I've worked on projects that had challenges and then, you know, I'll say, oh, it can't get any harder than this. The next one will be easier. And then there's always <laughs> something crazier or, you know, more challenging or just different the next time. So I've learned to not say, oh, yeah, it's not, it can't be any, you know, harder. So now, you know, we have long discussions with the researchers or the biologists to gather information about the details of the terrain and the weather and what other animals are there and, you know, stuff like that. And also schedule an actual in-person visit um, at least once if possible, whether you have to be helicoptered in or uh, take a ship or something like that. But um, we found that just even pictures and videos um, while they're helpful, don't really give you a sense of what, you know, the survey area is going to be like um, as much as being there in person. Um, there might also be like seasonal differences between like right now versus when you're actually going to be out there doing the surveys. So I think it's important to ask those questions or try to visit during the actual season that you'll be uh, working at as well. Um, and then, of course, if you're able to access the location, the train with your dog uh, prior to working there that that's even ideal but often that's not possible yeah yeah um no that's a really good point about seasonality and pictures not always doing things justice you know circling back to the example of the the cattle on the wind farm they could have sent us 20 pictures um and there's a good chance that there may have been cattle in the distance in one of those photos but um that wasn't necessarily um all that accurate for one of the things that we also found, which we never could have predicted, was that the cattle actually seemed to be attracted to the dogs. And in talking to one of the local farmers, he was like, oh, well, yeah, because the only people who are ever on the wind farm with dogs are the people who are there to feed the cattle because <laughs> um, they're bringing their cow dogs with them. Um, so there was just there was all sorts of uh, crazy <laughs> cattle shenanigans this last summer that we had to deal with um, that, you know, just would have been really difficult to predict. Hey everyone, just popping into this episode with an update on our Patreon. We still have the $3 a month doggy detector level, which allows you to ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode, but now also lets you join our monthly training video analysis calls. These calls are going to be recorded, of course, and we'll also publish the video afterwards for everyone to view and ask questions about prior to the call to ensure that all time zones can participate fully. So we'll basically publish the video we're going to analyze so that you can ask questions and view it and prepare ahead of time. Then we'll have the call where we talk about it. We can have beverages. It'll be a good time. And then all of that is going to be shared later. So you can participate before, during, and after. Again, just for three bucks a month. Now, at the $10 a month sensational scientist level, you get everything that we got before at the $3 level, plus you get to submit videos of your training sessions for those calls. So this is perfect for the aspiring canine conservationist, and your target odor doesn't really matter here as long as you do communicate what it is so we can think intelligently about your goals. Um, so this is going to be great for nosework competitors and other canine handlers as well, and we're really striving to make these video calls super kind and supportive and helpful, so um, it's going to be a nice safe place on the internet to get good feedback back on your training sessions because I know how much of a struggle that can be, especially in the set work world. So then finally, the canine conservationist patrons get everything from those other two tiers, plus a private 30-minute training call with me to go over whatever you're running into with your dog. 
That tier is just 25 bucks a month and that's cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com for behavior modification and that's just because I love you and I love my patrons. That's definitely something to check out. You can join that Patreon over at patreon.com slash canine conservationists or at the link at canineconservationists.org. It's like a tiny link up in the top bar. And then we also drop that link into our show notes. So if you're listening on your podcast app, you should be able to find it just right from there. So thank you guys so much and let's get back to the episode. Yeah. So why don't we, why don't we shift on over to funding, which is definitely always um, an issue and a question. Jennifer, what do you have to say about um, funding? Yeah. Big topic. Um, And this kind of ties in with the last one, because like Kyoko was saying, not all the time can we, um, you know, visit a site prior to a project happening. So although that's ideal and I completely agree, um, we also realize that researchers are often working with very constrained budgets and and because sometimes detection teams aren't um, sought out until kind of the last ditch effort um, (laughs) you know it's kind of a hail mary we only have this kind of pot of funding what can you do with it situation so um a couple of thoughts um you know is just thinking about the different costs that go into hiring a detection team it's not just the dog because you're frequently bringing the person um, that they work with as well. Um, so kind of thinking about travel uh, costs and arrangements, you know, if there is a bunkhouse that's that, you know, the agency or organization owns, that would be cheaper than, you know, putting the, the detection team up at a hotel. Um, if we can save costs on, you know, car camping, which we've done on a lot of our projects, it puts, it puts us on site for, um, the surveys the next day, but, you know, also realizing that detection teams have to eat. <laughs> so factoring in per DMs, um, whether we're camping or, you know, uh, in a field house that's kind of in a, you know, more central location. Um, and also, I would suggest reaching out to different detection dog teams. Um, it's not quite clear what we all charge for our services. Um, and sometimes we've heard that researchers no longer want to consider the detection dog methodology because they try going with someone like local who might have said like oh we can do this you know we'll just go out you know i have a dog and um it didn't go quite the the way they wanted it to um so it's always good to reach out even if you're not planning on working with them or you know it's it's just too far i'm just hearing from the different programs out there so you can kind of get a, a different idea about how detection teams operate in general i know that that sounds like a lot of um, upfront research that the researcher has to do. Um, but I think in the end, it will only serve them um, right because they'll they'll have a better idea jumping into their project kind of what to um, expect. So the other thing, just thinking about working with government organizations is um, sometimes they take a really long time <laughs> uh, to get to turn around on, on contracts. So um, even if the hope is to have it during a certain season, realizing that between back and forth, with all the different um, things involved with contracting to to give that uh, some buffer time too, because it's not a huge turnaround with with different grants and funding. So I think those are a few points. I'm sure there's many, many more. <laughs> yeah, I think there certainly could be. We could have a whole season just on funding and how much this costs and why it costs what it costs and grants and fundraising and all of the different options. Um, but I know Kyoko, you had a couple other things to add um, on the funding thing. 
Sure. Um, so yeah, of course, funding is always a challenge. But um, you know, lately I've been thinking of you know potential new ideas um, that maybe haven't been done before, at least in Hawaii, um, such as you know having multiple agencies uh, pool their resources, their financial resources, and you know pay for a project or a detection dog team together, um, because a lot of the agencies do have shared goals. Um, from state to federal to nonprofits and stuff like that. So I think that, you know, if they can pool resources, that might be a good way to fund um, detection dogs. Um, there's also, you know, I think it's good for researchers to know that sometimes you can also save some money and time by having the teams work on multiple target species instead of just one. Um, you know, a lot of people might not realize that the dogs can do that. And um, it's actually makes it more fun for the dog, too, to have more finds. So that's a um, possibility as well. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, no, those are all really, really good points. And as I said, you know, as I said, we could have a whole whole other conversation on funding. And I know, you know, it, even as as someone in this field, funding is probably one of the most daunting and sometimes confusing parts <laughs> of this job. Um, so Jennifer, you had a couple other um, points that we were going to bring up about kind of the difference between an experienced dog handler um, and someone who is a little bit newer. So did you have anything more that you wanted to add there as far as some of the the things that researchers should be aware of Um as far as what this job entails on the handler side of things so that they're aware um, potentially as they're screening options or looking at, Oh, there's one funding or one, one bid that's much cheaper than the others. Um, what they can yeah. be thinking about. And um, I imagine that this must be so confusing for researchers to navigate. And I fully um, respect that. And um, so this is, this is one of those challenging questions um, where um and I think there's actually been some papers about experienced teams versus green teams. Um, but I, it kind of leads a bit into our philosophy. So this might be, be different depending on, you know, who you talk to. But although we can, you know, deploy a dog in a matter of weeks, uh, we, the, the emphasis that we kind of focus on is the training of the, the handlers. Um, and after you know a couple months, they might have a general idea of it, but we um, share with them, <laughs> as well as researchers, we're very open, that it takes at least a year or two for a detection dog handler to really excel at this field. And at that stage, you know, you've, you've um, encountered a lot of different scenarios and situations and you've problem solved with your dog through a lot of different um, situations. Um, so even though a person might be really, really excited about getting out there into the field and doing this work, realizing that there's no fast track to becoming a conservation detection dog handler. Um, and even though it might be your passion and you've read a lot of books and you're, you know, going to seminars, there's nothing like actually do, you know, shadowing a, a team in person or being part of a program. And we realize that options like that are, are limited, um, but it's kind of like in the search and rescue field where they kind of apprentice for, for many, many years before they're ever actually deployed on a search and rescue um, mission. And so I think that uh, should be kind of similar in our field because the, the stakes of what we're being asked to locate are so high. So I would just urge researchers to um, 
really think about kind of the quality of data collection that they want to collect and sometimes um, cost factors into that. So if if cheaper is, is what they'd like, um, and I don't even know, I don't know if we're cheap or expensive in comparison, but sometimes I, I'm just sharing that sometimes that's not the best situation if, you know, another team that might have um, experience, you know, such as Kyoko with a lot of the different work that she's done, I might be like, okay, I just feel like they might know they, what they're doing as opposed to going with a per, this person who's like, you know, I'll do it for, for $30 less an hour or something like that. So just things to keep in mind. It's, it's not like a rule across the board, um, but yeah, just food for thought. Yeah, that's the, those are all really good points. Um, Kyoko, did you have anything to add as far as, um, I think I'm seeing in our notes that we've got a list of some of the skills that a handler, um, a really experienced handler should should have, um, and that in theory, if you want to pay for someone to do the work, you want them to do it right. So some of the things that they should be able to do. Yeah, so I think that um, there's a common um, a misconception that, you know, it's all about the dog, like the dog does all the work. And once you train the dog, then that's all that needs to be done. But uh, like Jennifer said, it's, um, it's teamwork. And so I think it's good for um, people to understand that the dog handler, the dog trainer, um, are very, very important to the success of the project as well. Um, you know, just being able to read the dog's um, behaviors in the field, um, in odor, you know, teaching discrimination between targets and potential non-targets, or, you know, knowing how the dog's going to respond to the different distractions or other stimuli that might be out in the survey area. Uh, understanding, you know, the weather patterns and how that might affect the survey. There's just so many different things to to know. And um, so, yeah, I think that um, definitely taking the dog handler experience into account, um, depending on what your goal is, um, is very helpful. Yeah. Yeah, there's again, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into this. And I guess anyone who in theory is hearing this podcast probably has heard a couple other episodes and therefore might have an idea of all of the continuing education that we're having to do. And you can imagine that this podcast is obviously just the tip of the iceberg of what um, us handlers are up to, um, to make sure that we're ready to uh, do the best we can to get your research done for you. Um, so next up, let's talk a little bit about timelines. Um, as far as, you know, the differences between a pilot project and a more complete project um, and what to take into account there. Um, I can't remember who went first last. Um, so Jennifer, we'll have oh, you start no again. Uh, yeah. I, I always like hearing what we all say. So this is kind of a fun back and forth. Um, yeah, in terms of projects, at least for us, uh, they can be, you know, anywhere from four months. We have a year long one to, you know, just five days. and. Uh, that's kind of a huge spectrum. Again, it depends on funding, but um, for the the really for species that we've already worked on, you know, developed on, and our both our handlers and our dogs have have been out in the field doing, we can kind of just roll into those projects. Some examples, you know, just include like mountain lion or Fisher or Martin. Um, we've done a lot of the projects for those species, so we're able to just kind of show up and start the project. Um, and, but we don't want to give a misconception to researchers out there because if it's a new species like bumblebee nests or caterpillar larvae or um, developing methods to locate viruses in plants, um, that's going to take a lot of research and development from on our part. 
And so it may not all be in the field. Some of this is done at our facility. Um, and like Kyoko was saying earlier, some of it might be done doing site visits, you know, not even bringing the dog there, but going to visit the field site and being like, okay, these are some of the challenges we're going to face. Um, so what we suggest, at least for a pilot project with a new species we've never worked on, and, you know, to kind of get people excited about it, say we can't, they can't have a full, full-blown season because we don't even know if this will work for this particular species of odor. We suggest at least seven to 10 days to get us on the ground um, and just, you know, that's both for kind of assessing the habitat uh, and meeting all the project partners, but also just getting our feet wet, so to speak. And by no means does that mean that by seven to 10 days, you know, it's in the bag. Sometimes we might need more and sometimes we might need less, but um, that's just our general rule of thumb. Um, and again, with acclimation to uncertain projects, we're going to an, a new environment. That alone, we like to say, it takes at least three days. So just thinking from, again, from the dog's perspective about, it's not a magic trick that we're pulling, even though dogs are incredible at <laughs> scenting and um, locating odors, um, it still takes time. Um, and some of that too is just us, the handler, learning how we need to communicate with the dog differently for different projects and species. We, speaking about some species that we had worked with or that we hadn't worked with, um, if we know that a detection dog program has done successful work with them, with the species, we'll actually suggest to the researcher, hey, have you have you reached out to so-and-so? We know that they've worked with the species and they've had results. We haven't, so if it's in you know their purview, they could consider uh, employing those detection teams. So we're never above saying like, you know, go with this team or go with that team. We know that they've they've already developed these methods and it's it might be more worth your time. And in some cases, the researchers are like, well, we'd like to work with you still because you're more local. So we'll work on developing these methods with you. But we always try to make sure that they realize that there's a time scale in there, um, depending on, you know, how much they want to invest in us learning versus going with a team that might already know. Yeah, I, I love that point. And it does, you know, we we are a small field and, you know, in my experience, we've all been pretty collaborative and um, it's great to hear that, you know, we're all continuing to, <laughs> to be honest about, Hey, you know, I actually, I haven't worked on this. It sounds tricky. So-and-so already has worked on something or even something similar. It's probably worth um, at least a conversation with them as well as, or instead of us um, going forward. Um, Kyoko, did you have anything to add on project timelines? Sure. Just a few things that I thought of were um, that if all the ducks are in a row, like such as, you know, training samples to train the dogs, um, permits and, you know, things like that, it's going to make everything um, go a little faster. Um, we, I mean, there, there could be projects too, where there are extra challenges um, where say the dog can't um, actually physically access the target um, and they have to be taught some kind of proximity alert um, and the dog handler is not going to be able to confirm the target uh, visually, things like that. So those things might require a little bit of extra time to train the dog teams. So to keep that in mind too when um, planning the time timeline I think is helpful. Yeah, those. that's a really good point. I know with um, 
I've worked on at least one project where the the target was was underground and we were not able to work with the actual target for our training. So we were able we had to spend a couple days kind of on the ground working with um, the actual target in the actual environment because there was just no no way to replicate how it was going to be in the field. And even you know even with the 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 wind farm work, which I is relatively straightforward work. The the samples that the dogs had been trained on prior to arriving in Nebraska were the same. I think I had like four or five carcasses um, that had been in the fridge and they'd been handled and, you know, we're, we're doing everything we can to keep them clean, but there's still always going to be a couple days of lead up time to make sure that the dogs are ready to go um, and actually uh, transfer over to um the the real deal. So on that note, let's talk a little bit about project design and collaboration. Um, you know, not all detection teams are going to offer the same level of collaboration, but to some degree, um, because we are the ones who know the dogs, there will be some back and forth on this. So Jennifer, do you want to chime in on anything um, regarding project design and sure. collaboration? Yeah. Um, I think in some cases, you know, some researchers, uh, they just want kind of a hired gun to go out and, and do this project that they've designed. And in the past, in the very early years, like, you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, that's kind of what we did. But we we soon learned that the dogs work a landscape very differently than some of the more traditional scientific methods out there. So simply, say, following a transect line that had been pre-set up for us um, might actually limit the methodology. Um, so we actually started suggesting different ways of working with detection teams in the field for for success. And this might not look like what, um, <laughs> you know, it, what would look good or pretty on paper. And I think having a voice in these conversations and discussions is important for researchers to understand because ultimately it just aids their project and it helps give um, greater return on the data they're hoping to find. And I think can think of a few different examples, again, with that transect idea, you know, wind moves across a landscape very differently. And so if we're just limiting a team um, to walking in a very specific line that might be drawn, you know, on a map that we can follow with a GPS, um, that might not be ideal for the project um, because there might be terrain or the winds going a different direction um, or your species doesn't like, you know, certain habitat so they're not going to go there and if it's super rare and your goal is just to find as much information on that species as possible um, maybe surveying on these areas where they might not be isn't important in some cases it is um, and it goes back to that multi-species design aspect where you can add in a different species so while you're out there say surveying for fisher that might be rare on a landscape you can add in coyote and bobcat that might be competing with fisher so that when you're not on a specific feature for that species you're still collecting data relevant to that species. I will say that in some cases, transects are very important, such as um, at wind facilities, um, precisely because it's usually a flatter terrain, not always, <laughs> but, and wind comes from a prevalent direction. And so detection teams can keep really tight transects to find every single, you know, or as much data as they can while they're out there. So again, it's those conversations, speaking with the detection team, learning what are the, the, pros of the method and kind of, you know, the strengths, but also kind of the weaknesses and then designing a project um, that best suits the information that they're hoping to collect. Yeah, those are excellent points. Kyoko, did you have anything to add there? Sure, yeah. Um, so we've suggested in the past um, 
you know, setting up more um, like controlled trials for, for data gathering. For example, if they wanted to compare um, like human visual sur surveys versus canine assisted um, surveys. Um, and, you know, the design of the, the data gathering was just to, you know, set aside, let's say like two weeks to see what did the people find and then what did the dog teams find. But, you know, if we feel that it's not enough time to gather enough data to make a meaningful comparison, then we might suggest, um, you know, setting up a like a trial with randomized hides and things like that, just because um, there just might not be as, that many wild targets out there to gather the data. So, um, yeah, we've definitely suggested things like that in the past. Yeah, yeah, that... That all makes a lot of sense. Um, so next up, we've got health concerns, which we've already touched on a little bit at the very top when we were talking about, you know, general safety concerns. Um, but uh, yeah, Kyoko, do you want to kick us off there with um, anything around health concerns, both for the dogs and the humans? Sure. So, um, you know, we have our own specific concerns in Hawaii. Um, for example, leptospirosis is a disease that dogs can catch from, you know, drinking um, water that's contaminated by um, rat feces. I guess maybe that's everywhere. I don't know. But um, so, yeah, we have specific things like that. And heat stroke, you know, definitely a big issue, a potential um, issue here because of the heat and humidity. Um, and if we do work in remote places, then we definitely have long discussions with the veterinarians um, after talking with the researchers about what the hazards might be out there. Um, you know, one time we went out to a place that had um, wasps and we didn't know how the dogs were going to respond to that. So we had to make sure that we brought, you know, um, medication in case of anaphylactic reactions because there are no veterinarians in that remote area. So just, um, yeah, being prepared, uh, knowing what you might face and talking with your, your vet and having all the supplies ready, I think, is um, a big thing for us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I know um, one of the things that came to mind for me as you were talking was, um, you know, the fact that when we were working on the wind farm this last summer, um, you know, rabies. <laughs> When you're when you're around bats, um, I like I personally am vaccinated against rabies. I actually got that back. I was doing a bat project in college, um, well before I was involved in the dog world. But you know that was a big factor that the, the researchers were very very aware of as far as um, having us handling the bats, um, and particularly if we were to come across a live bat, um, making sure that everyone was safe there. Um, Jennifer, did you have anything to add on kind of the health concerns and um, things? Yeah, I think, again, like you said, we touched upon a few of these. So I'm sorry if these are repeat. But um, what I appreciate most is when uh, whatever collaborators we're working with, they include the dogs as part of the team. Um, so when we're going into like a remote backcountry, knowing that whether we were uh, injured or the dog was injured, we received the same care. So um, what I mean by this is we carry satellite communication devices into the backcountry and we you know, can check in with these devices to say, like, hey, we're okay. But in the case of an emergency, um, for example, when we were working in Yosemite National Park, we actually had to ask the question, like, can we call in um, help if our dogs are injured? And they said, absolutely, yes. And I don't think we would have worked on that project otherwise because it's scary to imagine being 
miles and miles and miles away from a road and your only access is is to hike out and to imagine your dog in a situation that you can't get them to help um fast enough so i think always realizing that you know we are a detection team and the dogs are just as much a part of that and realizing that we're going to have to create a plan that includes emergency care for you know the dog portion um in most cases everyone's incredibly helpful in this situation and and they they're completely on board but I have been surprised in a, in a few situations, which is why we ask, where um, we're actually being told that we're caring too much for the dogs. And um, I've had to kind of, you know, my, I think my jaw dropped open, but I'm part of what I like to share, if, if that's the case, if people think like, oh, well, why are you boiling the water for dogs? They can just drink out of streams and, you know, dogs are, yeah, are full of energy. Why are you so worried about, you know, kind of maintaining their their rest schedules so strictly as well, you know, on top of their what they do in the field. And honestly, it's all just for, for the project goal. So if the dog is too tired to survey the next day because, you know, they played a game of fetch or, you know, went on a hike or just got to, you know, be around a lot of people where they didn't get to turn off or shut, shut down and kind of recharge their batteries, um, that's going to affect the survey. And if, if my dog drinks from a puddle out in the field, and it might be more convenient for us if he did that, but then he gets sick, then we're, we're down an entire team because I can't go out without him. Um, and along those lines too, sometimes we send multiple, you know, teams on a project. So sometimes I might go in, you know, on a project with two dogs. So then I can give my dogs proper resting care between the next um, survey. And I'll work the other one the next day. And of course, this, this is only dependent on whether we can give enough, you know, care to each dog. Um, so it's very project dependent. Or we send an actual uh, other team, you know, entirely, such as, you know, another human plus dog. And on in one case in Cambodia, for example, when one of the dogs got tick disease, we were able to continue um, surveying the area and kind of stay on um project timeline because we had we had sent two teams and that was also for our safety you know so that we had another person uh there with us but also for the dog safety so it's there's a lot of different goals when you think about a project and it's not just go out there and get as much data as you can it's also how do we keep the dogs safe healthy and happy to you know maximize that data collection and a lot of that might look like we're um uh for lack of a better word um this is a, not the right word, but Molly coddling, you know, <laughs> the dogs, but they, we, we need to um, maintain their, their health and their happiness in order to do this, this method. Yeah, definitely. No, those are such good points. And that again leads, you guys are doing a great job of leading into our next question, which is kind of on the concept of the weather and the terrain and the climate and the schedule and making sure that um, everyone understands that the dogs are not machines. <laughs> and again, even though they are high energy, their energy is exhaustible. And I know one of the things that I saw even with my teenage border collie, which is about as close to an energizer bunny as anything I've ever seen on the face of this earth. Um, <laughs> you know, we had a couple really long survey days where he got to the point where he was, he was either he would get to uh, a carcass and he would not alert, he would just kind of stand there and stare at me. <laughs> you can see his eyes are kind of glazed over. Or he would go over to the shade of the wind turbine and lie down and take a break. Um, and I could see an inexperienced handler marking the standing as not an alert. 
and the lying in the shade of a wind turbine as an alert um, and, you know, not necessarily recognizing what needs to be done for the dog in those moments. Um, there's a ton to be said on this. Um, Kyoko, do you want to kick us off with, you know, weather, terrain, climate schedule? Um, I know this is a, this is another huge one. Sure. So I think that Jennifer brought up some really good points um, already, but I just wanted to emphasize that, you know, dogs can't really work on a normal, you know, Monday to Friday, eight to five type of schedule. Um, you know, they have amazing um, noses and they can do things that we can't do, but they can't do it for eight hours a day. Um, and so to understand that, you know, maybe there's two to three hours in the morning and two to three hours in the evening or like like the cooler times of the day um, is when you'll get the most out of the dog and you it's important to give them enough um, breaks you know sometimes if we're working on a really long project that's more than just a few days um, you might even take like entire days off between survey days and stuff like that and it just re-energizes re the dog and I think you know even though like Jennifer said it might seem like we're, we're molly coddling the dog or we're being um lazy or something it's really more to you know maintain um the health and the well-being of the dog so that we can maximize the success of the project i think all of us want to be out there in the field as much as possible <laughs> we just you know have to know how to balance it yeah definitely well and i know one of the things that occurred to me when i when i was first starting out in this field and it was one of those things that is obvious but didn't I didn't quite realize was you know the concept of when your dog is a co or when your coworker is a dog you can't say hey buddy we've just got one more like let's push through hang in there you know I mean you can say that but they don't they don't understand the same way versus you know I've certainly been on a really long hike up some heinous mountain and we're able to communicate back and forth between the humans to, to get things done safely and make that final push. Um, but yeah, you're totally right that, you know, we want to be out there. We want to, but we also want to do this right. And that may mean, you know, I know this summer we were generally working two days on one day off um, and then being really strict about making sure those dogs, the dogs were getting their rest because we were expected to be out there for three months and, having a dog burnt out after two weeks isn't going to help anyone. Um, so Jennifer, do you have anything more to say there? I'm sure, I'm sure you do. <laughs> uh, well, hopefully helpful. Um, I just love chatting about these types of topics. Um, but I, yeah, you brought up the schedule and, you know, like not a normal schedule. So we also work like two days uh, and then have a rest day. And then sometimes we'll work three days and then have a rest day. Um, but the other thing to mention with schedule climate and, and just different environments is, you know, for some projects we might be able to go 18 miles because for that species, for example, we're, we're utilizing trails and roads um, and, and ridges, open ridges. But for other species, let's say it's really incredibly dense, like in a jungle or like coastal Oregon, um, and it's really thick, you know, we might only be going three to four kilometers a day. So the other thing to be aware of is what um, you might read in a publication isn't going to be the same for every single species or project. And we've often learned this the hard way. For example, when we started Sierra Nevada Red Fox work uh, at high elevation, our dogs were used to going, um, like I said, 18 miles a day. And we one of our first locations was nine miles in. We're like, we got this. And I think we started at like, you know, 
9 or 10 a.m. And, you know, we're going up to 10,000 feet. And by the time we got to our camp, sure, we made it. But yeah, the dogs were really, they were really tired. I mean, it's just a different environment up there. And we have to be aware of that. So now I start my surveys um, at 3.30 in the morning so I can get to those ridge tops, um, you know, right before first light and maximize uh, Filson's ability to, you know, smell in the early morning hours um, and not have to work through the hottest hours of the day. So it's also like Kyoko said, um, thinking about different times of days that you can work, which may not fit into a researcher's schedule, which is oftentimes why we do work um, solo out there because we might be working on, you know, on weekends and at ungodly hours just so that we can maximize the dog's ability to, to locate odor. Yeah, yeah, no, those are all really good points. I know, I know I've seen a couple of photos of some rogue dogs working at night even. Um, but, you know, that obviously is going to vary depending on where we are. Um, you know, I, I can imagine uh, in certain tropical areas in particular, that certainly would not be a safe option, um, which is a bummer because it's you're in the tropics and it's really hot. Um, one of the other things that came to mind for me that I don't think we've mentioned yet is the difference between um, dogs. So I have one dog who is, um, he's got big bat ears to keep him cool. Um, he's short haired, he's light colored. And then my other dog is a rough coated black border collie. Um, and I've really noticed a big difference between the two of them and how they handle heat. Um, Barley is much slower to acclimate to heat. He tends to deal with the heat less well um, in general. And he also gets hit really, really hard with humidity. Um, which is something that I hadn't considered as a big factor because humidity is considered helpful for scenting conditions. But he, um, even more so than heat, really seems to struggle if it's really, uh, really, really humid out. He wouldn't like Hawaii, maybe. <laughs> I'm a little bit worried about some of our upcoming project proposals we've got out for him. Um, we'll we'll see we'll see how he does if we end up going to ecuador <laughs> i think he's wishing i had applied for an andean bear project instead of jaguars um but we'll we'll deal with it we'll you know we'll do what we can and i mean as jennifer said i think the other thing that we're certainly thinking about as we're looking at um a potential project in the amazon is just it's going to be we're not going to be covering all that many miles in a day <laughs> It's going to be, it's going to be short days. It's going to be short surveys. Um, and, uh, probably a lot of, a lot of dips in the river for, for both dogs. Um, which luckily the place we're going, it's safe to do. Um, so unless we've got anything else on that topic, let's, um, wrap up with talking about solo versus accompanied. So, you know, is the researcher going to be joining us in the field? Um, Jennifer, why don't you start there? Yeah. Um, I think, it's just nice for researchers to know they have um, both options. I think there's surprise, like sometimes they're like, oh gosh, do I have to be there every single day with you? Like, I don't think my schedule will, will allow that. While other researchers are aghast that, you know, to think that we'd go out alone to collect data for their, for their projects. So we've seen um, both spectrums um, and it's really dependent on, on the researcher. We, uh, many detection teams can operate, you know, solo, meaning again, handler plus dog. Um, so we can go out and collect the data and, you know, do do the surveys to the design that we've all agreed upon um, and not without much interaction or engagement on the researcher's side so they can continue doing um, all the things that they're doing, um, you know, on the, on the, you know, with their main role. <laughs> and this is actually why in some ways um, we are 
you know, program at least developed is because many researchers were trying to be detection dog handlers at the same time. And it just wasn't, you know, it's, it's already a full-time being a researcher. It's already a full-time job being a conservation detection dog handler. So it didn't really blend well to getting the best results for, um, for that research project. Um, so I think it was really, for some folks, it's really nice to have that separation. That being said, um, I think there are times when having the biologists or the researchers out there with the detection teams is not only it's not only nice, but it's also necessary because, um, for example, with our caterpillar work, if they're very fragile, um, and we only have very specific permits, so we need to have um, all eyes, you know, on their ground, um, ensuring that you know this protected species in these locations, um, everything's going according to plan. Um, and also for any kind of live animal work that we do, there's always someone there trained to handle the animal uh, if and when we find it, because um, although we can get trained in that, again, it's not necessarily something that we need to be trained in doing. And often, it's, you know, there's our, the researchers already have that uh, and very important special training already. So um, there's just those different options to think about um, depending on project goals. Yeah, those are great points. I know one of the other ones that I've run into on solo versus a company, it is particularly if we're doing anything that involves navigating a lot of waterways, we might not necessarily need the lead researcher with us. Um, but if you're going to be uh, expecting us to take the dogs potentially from sandbar to sandbar in a river, um, we are going to need someone with us to help pilot um, pilot that boat. Um, so there's there's all sorts of factors there, you know, even though I, I am a pretty accomplished canoeist and kayaker, I'm not going to be doing all of those things at once as much fun as that sounds like in, in my, <laughs> in my dreams. <laughs> um, Kyoko, do you have anything to add on solo versus accompanied? Yeah. So like you said, it's um, not always um, essential for the lead, you know, researcher or biologist to um, come with us, but sometimes it's really helpful to have an assistant who is familiar with um, the biology of the wildlife that's out there. Um, for example, you know, at a wildlife refuge where we worked, there's, you know, several species of endangered birds and they each have their own, you know, um, characteristics and nesting habits and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, a critical distance where you can um, approach them or not. So, you know, while we try to learn as much as we can to keep things or to avoid disturbance, you know, it's impossible for us to know everything. So it's really helpful sometimes in those types of environments to have a, what we call a biological shadow. Um, so yeah. And then of course, you know, assistance with navigation and um, just, you know, pointing us to the areas that are productive to survey and things like that. That's helpful sometimes as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think the last the last question we are going to have here before I will obviously off open everything up and we can have any final thoughts, final chatter as we wrap up here. But when dogs might not be the right choice, and again, this is something that we may bring up when we get an initial email from a researcher, but also for the researchers to think about, and at least you know be aware that this may happen before they reach out to um, a dog team. Kyoko, do you have anything um, to start us off there? Sure. Um, I think there are definitely several situations where dogs are not the right choice. And um, sometimes you won't know until you try because it's a new species that, you know, has never, nobody's ever tried before with dogs. Um, and then you try it and then you realize that um, 
yeah, maybe the dogs can detect it in a controlled environment, but in the wild, it's really not practical. Um, or other times, you know, it might be terrain that's um, just not conducive. Like there's nests in a steep cliff, you know, full of thick vegetation and you have to like rappel the dog down or something like that, which, you know, maybe it's possible, but um, maybe it's not the best idea. So I think um, kind of goes back to the discussion we started with where you have to visit the site, learn what the specifics of that uh, location are and what their needs are so that we can uh, maybe predetermine to some extent whether dogs might be helpful in that situation. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, all of these things that we've talked about over these past two episodes relate to the concept of whether or not dogs might not be the right choice. I know, I think I've mentioned previously on the podcast, I got an email from someone, gosh, close to a year ago now, who was interested in doing rattlesnake detection work. Um, and, you know, my my early response to him was, eh, that might not be the best choice for dogs. And if dogs are able to do it, I would much rather send you off to someone who has done extensive work, not just with reptile detection work, but also working with some uh, risky reptiles. Um, because that's simply just, that's not something that I'm willing to take on as um, an early project for myself and my dogs. Um, similarly, I, I got a ton of um, messages. This was back when I was at Working Dogs for Conservation, but when the murder hornet scare came around, that was like way back in the pre-pandemic times, I got a bunch of people asking me if we were going to use our dogs to find murder hornet nests. Um, and, you know, it's like, ah, that might be possible. I don't know enough about their behavior and if they have periods of torpor or something like that where it might be safe. But my, my knee-jerk reaction is, no, I would not send my dogs into a murder hornet nest. Um, so, Jennifer, do you have any other, um, you know, beyond the target species or finding a live animal that is potentially really risky, what else um, could come up uh, that would maybe make you say, eh, I don't know if this is the right job for, for dogs yeah, in general? Um, we've been approached in the past to find a wild boar, and then we would have been, or their idea was that they, we would go with hunters, and when our dogs found the wild boar, who were invasive, they would shoot them. And we're like, I think it's a very, you know, it's very important that, you know, there's invasive species management out there. And we realize that, you know, this is, this is important to those ecosystems, but we're not sure that we're the best team for that, you know, because you know, it's, a, those sounds are loud and being in the field with um, active hunting and possible um, conflict with boars and dogs doesn't sound like a great mix to us. We know for some folks, it sounds like a great, you know, day in the field or a nice sport, but um, that's just not, you know, what we do. So yeah, just making sure what those teams can do. And and similar to your murder COVID, we've been asked about that, or sorry, murder hornets. We've been asked about that as well as um, COVID early on because we've done some virus work. And initially we're like, well, we, we just don't know what the transition between, you know, searching for this odor is to the dog, let alone especially in the early stages of post-humans. So we um, politely declined developing uh, any methods for that, especially because, again, one, it's not our expertise, and this is likely can be done by professional teams who work in more laboratory conditions uh, than us who are used to field work. So again, knowing the detection group that you're working with, um, while our dogs can find snares and um, poached animals uh, and bush meat, you know, when you're working in Africa to help 
the rangers, in addition to what we were searching for, they actually have anti-poaching teams who are accompanied by, you know, rangers with firearms um, so that if any apprehension has to occur, you know, they're prepared for that. So I think that, yeah, there's just different levels of, of detection out there and being aware. And, you know, one thing I was thinking when you talked about Ecuador, uh, I am really afraid of the bullet ants. Um, <laughs> I was doing some mist netting there years ago before dogs, and I was always afraid to touch the mist net because I never knew if we were going to have a bullet ant. Um, so just one thing to be aware of if if you head down that area. Yeah, I, I, um, I last time I was in Ecuador, I was down with a, a group. Um, I was in undergrad at the time, so there was a bunch of 19 to 22 year old men with me, and they all wanted to get stung by bullet ants as part of their rite of passage. And I chose to <laughs> chose to opt out of that particular activity, but um, got stung by a couple other things. I had a very nasty, hairy caterpillar fall down the back of my shirt one day that left <laughs> quite the rash. Um, so yeah, the, uh, the Amazon's not a friendly place. It doesn't want you there, which is that's, I mean, that's kind of the point of the, uh, the grant that I've submitted as well as just kind of looking at like, is this going to work? We don't know. <laughs> Which, you know, I think that's that's maybe a good point to end on as far as, you know, are dogs the right choice or not? There might be, there probably are a couple specific projects where um, it's, we can say, eh, probably not. Um, but, you know, that's also where a pilot study can come in. I think um, there are enough different researchers with enough, di or enough different conservation dog people out there with enough different experience. There's a good chance that with you might be able to do a pilot study and kind of see as long as it's something that's safe to to give a try. So within reason. Well, as we're wrapping up here, is there anything more um, that we wanted to circle back to or anything new that um, has come to mind that we wanted to bring up before we let everyone go? Um, Kyoko? Thanks. I can't think of anything else mm -hmm. right now, but I just wanted to say how much I appreciate you um, doing this um, joint podcast where we could talk about some of these topics that aren't necessarily, you know, talked about in other podcasts. So thanks, Kayla. And it's been a pleasure, Jennifer, to chat with you as well. Yeah. Yeah, Jennifer, did you have anything else you wanted to circle back to or bring up? I think this has been uh, really in-depth, and I, I'm just excited to think it might be a resource for not only detection dog handlers, but our researchers um, looking to utilize the method. So yeah, I appreciate both of your time too. I, it's just been a really fun discussion. So thank you. Yeah, no, and I really appreciate both of your time. I'm glad we were able to get this into a two-parter instead of I was worried this might turn into a, a three or four-parter. Um, and of course, there's more that we could talk about. Um, so, you know, any listeners at home, particularly if you are an ecologist or a conservation biologist, researcher of some sort, and you've got further questions, please do reach out, um, comment wherever you see this shared. And um, we'd love to hear kind of what your lingering questions are going forward. And maybe we will do a part three. That's a Q&A. Um, as we're rounding things out here, Kyoka, do you want to remind people where they can find you um, and let us know if there's anything exciting coming down the pipe for you? And then Jennifer, same thing afterwards. Sure. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Conservation Dogs Hawaii. And um, we just started Twitter. So there's only like three tweets <laughs> so far but um we're cdh sniffer dogs i believe uh geez i don't even know the the handle um and our website is www.conservationdogshawaii.org that's so exciting to find out you're on twitter uh we're on twitter too Excellent. although we're still um 
learning. <laughs> so I'll have to look you up. I think we're at Rogue Detection. Um, and we're also on Facebook and Instagram at Rogue Detection Teams. And you can find us online at roguedogs.org. And um, as far as things in the pipeline, you know, it's, it's winter. So we're still figuring out what our next year will look like. But um, hopefully lots of fun species in, in the new year. <laughs> oh, that's exciting to hear. Yeah, and we'll, uh, of course, as always, we will drop those links into the show notes, which you can find over at canineconservationists.org. Thank you both so much for coming on, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Um, As always, we hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. Again, you can find those show notes, donate, join our Patreon, all that good stuff over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time.